Well, tonight, the Revelation chapter 7 deals with the 144,000 sealed. By the time we end up tonight, by the way, tonight, because I've got to fly, I want you to give me hand signals if you need it, okay? If you want a scripture reference, and I, I'll give it out, and if I go too fast, just wave your hand or just raise your hand, and I'll go back and repeat it, just the verse, and then keep going. If I've lost you completely, just wave your hand, and I'll back up about a paragraph and then pick it up right then, okay? And so what we're doing is picking up Revelation chapter 6 through 18, what we're not going to cover in our Sunday morning, and we're going to talk about the 144,000 seal. Now, in Revelation chapter 7, there are two visions, and I believe that these two visions... Out of all of the visions in the book of Revelation, and there are many, even though it is one revealing, one apocalypse, one unveiling, these two are the most comforting that John wrote. And I, my prayer, my hope is that you leave here tonight just kind of excited, that you've been comforted, strengthened in your faith, um, and, and maybe a little more confident to face the future because of John's, John's writings. In the context, the visions are given to strengthen. Let's see if this is the next one. Nope. The, and the context is the vision is given to strengthen to us to do what we ordinarily would not be able to do on our own. And so the visions of John here is to bring great comfort as he sat on piles of rocks on the tiny island of Patmos, and it had to be a great comfort to him. And what he wrote also had to be a great comfort to his first century audience. Now, one of my basic presuppositions is this, that if we're going to find the book of Revelation meaningful and the vision or the revelation, if it doesn't make sense to John's original audience, that first century audience, it will not make sense to us. So if you look at Revelation 7 or 12 or 14 and you go, oh, that is fill in the blank with whatever politician, that's who that is. Well, that would have made no sense to the first century Christian because that's 2200, 2100 years ago. And so that's kind of a basic presupposition to what's going on. So let's read the text. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. Revelation 7, and I hope you'll mark your Bibles up. Uh, holding back the four winds to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or any trees. Then I saw another angel coming up from out of the east, having a seal, circle the word seal, of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had, given the, who had been given power to harm the land and to the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or trees. Underline this phrase, until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. By the way, what, what's wrong with chapter or verse 5 right there? Anybody know right off the top of your head? Good. From the tribe of Dan, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali. The Lydie, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. Nobody knows what's wrong with verse 5, right? Good. 
all right? From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Ishakar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 10,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. There's something wrong with that verse. We'll get to it in a minute. And from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, these are the sons of Jacob. These are the, the lineage of Abraham. Part of the Abrahamic covenant. Write this down. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1, 2, and 3. Abrahamic covenant. We'll kind of refer back to that in a little bit. After this, John says, I looked. I looked. And there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne of God. By the way, nation, tribe, people, and language is a cool little phrase. You might want to underline that. They were wearing white robes and they were holding palm branches in your hand. By the way, what do we do Easter Sunday? Or Palm Sunday, I'm sorry. Well, we wave the, you know, a lot of the church has the customs of the palm branches when Jesus made his entry into Jerusalem. And they, the number that could not be counted, cried out in a loud voice saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. This is pure worship. And the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders uh, and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength to our God forever and ever and ever. Remember the centerpiece of Revelation is Jesus Christ on the throne. Even after the horrific scenes of chapter 6, the Antichrist and the war and the famine and the death and the pestilence and the unbelievers crying out that the rocks and the mountains would fall on them. It was such a time of cosmic upheaval, tribulation just so intense. Who is still on the throne? The Lamb of God. And the saints of God from all ages bow down and they praise his name. Remember, the Lamb is always, he's always on the throne. Then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they? Where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know. Basically, John's saying, I don't have a clue. And he said, these are they who come out of the great tribulation. Interesting phrase. You might want to underline that. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. By the way, for those of you who have kids and have washed blood out of clothes, you know that's not the right way that that reads, is it? But they washed their robes and they were made white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them in his presence. And listen, listen to this comforting words. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will, be not, or the sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will be, or he will... Lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eye. And the people of God say, Amen. What a chapter. Two visions. Two visions. Okay, and I want you to understand there are two scenes that belong together in the book of Revelation. They occur at different places, and they occur at different times. And I want to prove that case in just a moment. But how do we know this? How do we know they have appeared at two different, or occurred at two different places and at two different times? Now, this is where you really need your Bible tonight. In Revelation chapter 7, 4. 
I think I got that verse up there. No, I do not. All right. Revelation 7, 4 says, Then I heard, then I heard the number of those who were sealed from all the tribes of Israel, 144,000. He said, I heard. Then look at verse 9. He said, and after this, I looked. After what? After verse 4. He said, after this, I looked. And there before me was a great multitude. And so I want you to know that there's something important going on here. There's a pattern that you need to just kind of be aware of as you look at the book of Revelation. It seems that John has this pattern of, I heard and I saw. I hear, John says, and I see. It seems that hearing always precludes or precedes the seeing. And so John said, I heard it, then I turned and I saw it. In Revelation chapter 5, the theological center of the book, look at verse 5. It says, and by the way, I can't wait to preach this on a Sunday morning. Then the elder said to me, remember Jesus has handed the, or the scroll in heaven, the history of humanity is there. Nobody could open it. And John begins to weep. In verse 5 he says, then the elder said to me, do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. So we heard, look at verse 6, then I saw the lamb. So you see this, this voice. In Revelation chapter 1, go back to verse 10. It says, on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a voice like a trumpet. Drop down to verse 12. I turned around to see. So here's this pattern of I hear, I see, I hear and I see, I heard and I saw. And so what John is trying to simply tell us here is that the pattern tells us that even though they're in the same chapter, they're not in the same places, even though they belong together. Now, how in what sense do they happen? I think these two scenes, the first scene goes from verse 1 to the end of the, uh, the, hundred, or the 12,000s there in verse 8. The second scene from verse 9 to verse 17. They go together, they happen at two different times, two different places, but these two scenes shape the horizon of discipleship in this world. I want to say that again. They shape the horizon, it's not on your sheet, but they shape the horizon of discipleship in this world. Verse 1 through 8 takes place before, and scene 2 takes place after. After what? I think verses 1 through 8 takes place before chapter 6. And then I think verses 9 through 17 take place after uh, the, the judgments. And we see Christ in all of his glory. The first scene reveals the fact that the servants of God, the disciples of Jesus Christ, are sealed. You see that, 144,000, 12,000, da-da-da-da-da. And that they can pre be preserved, that they'll persevere through all of the plagues, all of the judgments that were opened during the sealed judgments. And we also, by inference, would also believe the trumpet judgments and the bull judgments that we'll get to. John does not say that these are the ones who came out of, nor does he say these are the ones who will come out. Look at verse uh, 14. I think that's the right verse. John says, who are these? And, and he says, I don't know, sir, you know. And he says, these are they who have 
come out of the great tribulation. Now, you have to understand what was going on in John's world and John's life. In John's life, there had been, well, let me, let me just keep going because I'll, I'll get to it, I promise. All right, let me just go there. This is the great tribulation, all right? Now, depending on your eschatological view, whether you're a premillennialist or pre-trib, premillennialist or whatever, the tribulation figures very prominently. And for those of you who hold to a premillennialist viewpoint, be careful that you don't assume that tribulation is coming at a future date. All John knew in his Christian walk was tribulation. Walk with me. In Matthew chapter 2, when the Magi went to Herod, this wise, politically savvy leader was so threatened by a baby that the Magi wanted to come and worship the king and the Jews. That What did he do? What was his response? He had all the male children two and under in the vicinity of Bethlehem. And Bethlehem and Judea are separated by only six miles. He had the male children killed. If that would go on in our day, the news would be all over it, and I'm telling you, drones would be bombing like crazy. But he had the power, and he stayed on in power. You talk about tribulation. And in John's life, he saw attacks on the life of Christ, and, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees rise up against them. They, they saw kind of a schism between uh, Rome and and Jews, and then the Jews in this emerging Christian faith. He saw Jesus die on the cross, rise again, and ascend back to heaven. Going on at this time were pretty significant earthquakes in Asia Minor, where the seven churches of Asia are. There were pretty significant earthquakes that had occurred in Palestine with significant, archaeologists tell us, loss of life. There was also this thing of emperor worship, and we've kind of touched on that every Sunday where Domitian, who is the, the emperor of John's day, said, if you will not take the mark of the king, if you will not say Caesar is Lord, you will be punished, and even to the point of death, and certainly Antipas in the church of Smyrna is a martyr that we look at. I mean... All John knew the church was persecuted. They came up for a word for the Jews who were persecuted. After, the, after Pentecost, the word is dispersia. Or the dis, yeah, the dispersia. Because the Jews were so persecuted, they had to flee Jerusalem. But perhaps the most abominable thing that happened was in 70 AD when Jerusalem was ransacked and the temple was burned and, and the holies of holies was profaned and defiled. And it was such an abomination that Israel was just in shame and Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel, was in shambles. That would be like... You know, Washington, D.C. just getting blown up by ISIS. The rage we would feel is the same rage that they felt in their tribulation. Take the fact that John is now probably 
in his mid to late 80s, maybe even, even in, his, in his 90s, but certainly in his 80s, and he has seen all of the other disciples, James, who was the leader of the Jerusalem church, and, and Paul, who was martyred outside on the seven-mile road, Peter, who was hung upside down on the cross, also crucified at Rome, and he saw all of the disciples. James was thrown off the Jerusalem wall and filleted alive. And then his brains were beat out with a fuller club. You talk about tribulation. When John talks about tribulation, he knows what tribulation is. We do not. But you could go to China. And the church in China mainly started or influenced in growth by, the, by an awesome man of God, Hudson Taylor. It's just not only exploding, but really being challenged in tribulation. Idi Amin in Uganda, you could go to Rwanda, and you could, you could go to, to, to Russia. I mean, you could just go around the world. When tribulation abounded. By the way, it still abounds today. May I remind you that the Christian people are the number one persecuted people group in the world. Just because we all live in a nice home, sit in a nice church, drive a nice car, we think judgment, we think tribulation is coming down the road. I think for John, and by the way, I'm not saying this is right, I'm just saying this is where I've landed, okay? And it may change next year, but for tonight, this is where I've landed, all right? I think for John, I think the tribulation started the day Jesus was born. When the angels broke through the, the realm of the supernatural and stepped into the world of the natural and said, Behold, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And the kingdom of God began to move. And the response from Satan, the killing of the male children in Bethlehem in the vicinity. That, anytime the kingdom of God and the kingdom of, of Satan collide, that's where the tribulation, this, this, is the word. We've already talked about it. That's where tribulation happens. You say, no, no, no. It comes at a future date. I think it will intensify as future dates become present dates. But I don't think anybody in this room can say tribulation for the body of Christ is not happening. It absolutely is. Go to persecutedchurch.org Spend less than 30 minutes there. Watch three videos, any three videos, of people making a stand for the cause of Christ. Probably, and this is not, and I will not get done, but let me just tell you one because I'm pretty wrapped up. I'm just amped about. Let me just tell you this story. A young lady was, gave her heart to Jesus, returned from Muslim faith and her father just out and out rejected her and because scripture says honor your father and mother he threw her beat her and then threw her on a mat on a dirt floor and said don't you get up until you renounce Jesus as your God and he left her never came back never came back 
three months later, she was still sitting on that mat, soiled by her own feces. Her body dwindled away to just bones. Her legs, in the, in the manner that she sat, began to bend to the position that she would sit in. And if it wasn't for other believers who came to her aid, she would have died on that mat, taking her stand for Jesus Christ. Tribulation. Remember the story of Cassie Burnell? Remember Cassie? Cassie Burnell. Um, you'll know her. She was the junior in high school that was shot at Columbine. Two shooters went through and one shooter just randomly asked, does anybody here believe in God? And she said, yes, I do, and put a bullet. What you may not know about Cassie Burnell, but by the way, you talk about where the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan collide. What you may not know is that two years before that, she was heavily involved in witchcraft, drugs, and sexual immorality. She was a young lady out of control. Her parents told her, said, here's your choice. You will either sit in your room in total isolation or you're going to go to church and be a part of the youth group. To be honest, the first option sounded much better than the second, but she went with the second. Went there a couple of weeks. They went off to a retreat and she gave her heart and life to Jesus Christ. And when she came back, her parents, her grandparents, teachers at school, everybody knew something was different about Cassie. The gloom of death was gone, and the joy of the risen life of Jesus Christ was in her soul. So at her funeral, testimony after testimony. Matter of fact, they played a video of her sharing her faith in a public high school. And in her funeral service, 72 high school students, 72 or 73 high school students came forward to accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. Tribulation. See, there's something in us that we just don't want to suffer for Jesus Christ, but Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. You will have persecution. Listen, do not accept Christ thinking that it's going to be a bed of roses. When you step into the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Satan pushes back. Right there is the tribulation point. Got it? And you say, well, what about dispensationalism and, and, and uh, let's see, what is it? Covenant, covenantial dispensational pre-tribulation. I, I'm clueless, man. I typically think if you've got to make up words to explain something in the Bible, it's probably not. I mean, I, Trinity's not in the Bible, and we use it to explain it, and I get that. But I'm just simply saying, let's look at what Matt, Revelation 7 says, okay? And so, what I think he means is that by the great tribulation is what I just explained. When the kingdom of God is present and the kingdom of God shows up, you have this tribulation. We already talked about it here and see. I'll let you kind of catch up here in just, uh, in just a second. And so, the answer that I've landed on from John's perspective, the great tribulation started with when Jesus entered in this world and it's just going to continue to intensify until Jesus Christ comes again. The Bible teaches that 
and I believe that they believed that the tribulation, the early church, this clashing of the kingdoms started, I think, at the birth of Jesus Christ. Paul's writings kind of allude to it. And, and so we're going to... So the two scenes in Revelation 7... In about 15 seconds, I just went through three pages. So there's the two scenes in Revelation 7 are given to John for his congregation to help us keep our priorities, our perspective, and our faith in the midst of tribulation. This word of comfort and promise. Man, if you can't get excited about Revelation 717 where God says I'll wipe every tear away from your eye it's also repeated in chapter 21 and or 22 we'll get there a little later but man it just is fantastic the whole cosmos the heavens and the earth all rejoice that Jesus Christ the Lamb of God is still on the throne so this is the prayers Look at, so let's kind of talk about a little chronological here, all right? Let's see, I'll just try to let you catch up for just a second. What John 7 tries to answer, I think, is the question that Revelation, I'm sorry, what Revelation chapter 7 tries to answer is the question that Revelation 6 ends with. Look at Revelation chapter 6 and verse 17. The uh, sixth seal has been opened. There's been this great earthquake. The sun has turned black. The moon's turned blood red. The stars, probably meteorites, but stars fall to the earth as figs drop from a fig tree when it's just uh, blown by a strong winds. The heavens roll back. They recede like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place and the kings of the earth and the princes and the generals and the rich and the mighty and everyone else both saved and free hid in caves. These are unbelievers and among the rocks of the mountains and they call out to the mountains and the rocks. They're praying to the mountains and rocks. Hide us. Kill us. Take our lives. Hide us from the one who sits on the throne. And here's the question, verse 17. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can withstand it? So the question that unbelievers were asking is, hey, who can handle this kind of judgment? Who can handle this kind of fist pits? Who can handle this kind of tribulation? Who can stand under this kind of crushing pressure? And Jesus gave John the answer, I believe, in Revelation chapter 7. Matter of fact, Look at Revelation 6, 7 for just one second. Let me read it to you. Then the Lamb opened the fourth seal, and I heard a voice of the fourth living creature. He said, come. And then you go to verse 17. Who can withstand it? So I believe the first scene in Revelation 7 happens before anything else in Revelation chapter 6. Look at Revelation 7, 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds, and we know four is the, the number of the cosmos. We talked about that last week. And uh, John does not say, after this, it happened. John said, I saw. The question to ask yourself as you read through the book of Revelation, 
and you got to be careful here, is not what happens next, but it's what did John see next? Because there's, a, a, there's times in the book of Revelation for when what John saw next isn't chronologically what happened next. Because John will go from heaven to earth and, and stay on earth, and then all of a sudden we see the, a scene in heaven. And it's almost like he has an interlude and he goes back. It's almost, like a, it's almost like a movie that kind of starts at the end and then they have flashbacks and they let you know how they got there. It's kind of the, the same idea. So when the first scene in Revelation 7 with the sealing of the saints of God happens before the unsealing of the scroll of history. Look at Revelation 7, 3. It says, Do not harm the land or the sea, or the trees. Now, who's going to do the harming? Well, I think it's the four horsemen from Revelation or the four riders on the four horsemen in Revelation chapter 6. So he's saying, do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put the seal on the foreheads of the servants. So the drama of 6 happened. And oh, by the way, let me give you the backstory. None of that happened. In case you're wondering... Who can stand? Let me answer that question. Let me just rewind it a little bit. Who's able to stand it? Those who have been sealed by God. And so, it, in the book of Zechariah, and I believe John had this in mind, and just write Zechariah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. It, the, language is, the language is very similar. And I meant to have this marked in my Bible so I could find it very quick. And it's one of those, I know it's like back there. I know it's in there. Just listen to, to what it says. Zechariah chapter 6 and verses 1 through 8. Now I'll, I'll read real quick, but just listen. Doesn't it sound like the same languages? I looked up and there was before me four chariots coming out between two mountains, mountains of bronze. The first chariot was had red horses, the second black, the third white, and the fourth dappled. That's the pale horse. All of them powerful. I asked the angel who was speaking to me, what are these? My Lord and the angels answered, these are the four spirits of heaven going out from standing in the presence of the Lord of the whole world. The one with the black horse is going toward the north, and the one with the white is going to the west, the one with the dappled horse towards the south. And when the powerful horses went out, they were straining to go throughout the earth. And he said, go throughout the earth. So they went throughout the earth. Then he called to me, look, those going toward the north country have given my spirit rest in the land of the north. Now, a Jew was very familiar with the apocalyptic and prophetic message of Zechariah. It was a day of impending judgment for Israel for their unbelief. And it was destruction's going to come on every side. And John, no doubt, had that, I believe, in mind when he wrote about the four horsemen and the four winds that are identified. And in Revelation chapter 7, just remember, according to verse 3, I, it's where I've landed for, for at least tonight anyway, is that the four horsemen of Revelation chapter 6 cannot ride until the 144,000 are sealed. Are you still with me? So now the $64,000 question is, who are these sealed servants of God? And here's where there's a big quagmire of revelation, and uh, there is huge disagreement on this. 
I'm not saying I'm right. I'm just simply saying this is kind of where I've landed tonight, all right? So please listen. And if the text doesn't make sense to John's audience, then it won't make sense to us. Because all truth has to be anchored in reality. Jesus Christ is not mythical. He's not, he's not like the Gnostics claim to be. He is very real, died on the cross, completely tasted death for us, and rose again. A very objective historical fact. It, it's grounded in, based in truth. And so if it doesn't make sense to John's audience, I don't think it'll make much sense to us. And I'm not telling you I'm right. I'm just telling you this is kind of where I've landed. So who are the 144,000 servants of God? Verses 3 and 4. Look at verse 3. Do not harm the land of the sea. We just read that. Then I heard the number, verse 4, of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. So let me just say this. I just said that. I'm, I'm a little behind on my, my thing. Let me just say this, is that here we are. We're caught up. The structure of the book of Revelation, please make sure you get this in your notes right, and the structure of this apocalyptic chapter, Revelation chapter 7, is heavily saturated with symbolism, numerology, and it suggests that we not take this number, 144,000, as a mathematically literal number. Matter of fact, I would suggest you not take very many of the numbers in the book of Revelation as a mathematically liberal number because they all have meanings that the first century people would certainly have been familiar with. Now, let me just kind of hasten to say that if you've ever had a Jehovah's Witness knock on your door, the reason they knock on your door is because they believe that there's literally going to be only 144,000 people in heaven, and they're trying to work their way into heaven by getting you to, by trying to proselyte or to convert you into Jehovah's Witness so they can get a little check, so that you know, the, the scales of their goodness outweighs the scales of their badness, and they're counted among the 144,000 people. I happen to think there's going to be quite a few more than 144,000 people in heaven. Matter of fact, why do I say that? Look at verse 9. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one can count. Go to verse 4, they counted or suggested, you know? They numbered it 144,000. So, you got to decide, is this a literal number or is this a symbolic number? I'm inclined to believe, like Michael Wilcox, yes, Michael Wilcox of England, who said that, he said this, I think is a great little quote, he said, the number of 140,000 is suspiciously, is a suspiciously tiny sort of number. I believe this number is much more likely to be a symbol than a statistic. You ever played a game and somebody just beat you and you say, oh man, they killed me. Or really, what was the score? I don't know. They beat me by 100 points. 
It doesn't matter if you're playing tiddlyweeks or basketball, you know, unless you're the Lions, nobody beats you by 100 points. All right? But I think what John was saying and what John is using this as a symbol, 144,000 is 12 12s. Times that by 10, that's a big number. Times that by 10 more, that's a bigger number. You, you times that by 10 again, so you take 12 squared times 10 cubed, you get a huge number. Remember when Peter asked Jesus, how many times do you forgive somebody? A good Jew would forgive somebody three times and, and then send them off to jail if they did it again. So Peter wanted to kind of make this impression that he's this really spiritual guy. And he said, so Jesus, how often do you forgive a guy? Knowing that the number was three, he doubled it and added one seven times. And Jesus said, no, not seven times, but 70 times, 70 times seven. So is Jesus telling us to take a piece of paper and just kind of keep a list? And man, when they get to 149, boom. Or 490, boom, judgment falls. No. It was Jesus who was saying, listen, it's an unlimited amount because grace is at work. I think 144,000 represents an unlimited number because grace is at work. Some people believe that the, 12, that the number represents the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The, the book of Revelation, by the way, is, is loaded with the number 12. The 12 tribes, 12 apostles, 12 foundations, 12 gates of pearls in heaven, 12 angels who sit on the gates, 12, the tree of life who bears 12 manner of crops or, or fruit for the healing of the nations. The 12 is a loaded number. Basically, when he said 144,000, I think it was the Hebrew way of saying this is a huge, ever-changing, ever-growing, uncountable number. Now, when Jesus comes then that's, you know, it, it, it ends, you know. It, judgment and eternity begins. There'll be a, a finite number in heaven and a finite number in hell. But until then, it is just this large number. So don't lock in on the 144 and think it's 144,000 and no more. I think it's a symbolic number in apocalyptic literature that lets us know this is a huge number. Matter of fact, if you don't think it's a huge number, you've got to reconcile the fact then that verse 9 is referencing verses 4 through 8 that says it's 144,000. But then you come to verse 9. Again, we've already read it, but he said this is a great multitude that no one can count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne of God and wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands. So now the question is, who's represented by this symbol? Who's a part of the 144,000? Go back to verse Five. All right, verse 4 and 5. I obviously cannot multitask when I preach. From the tribe of Judah were 12,000 were sealed. And from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. And then he goes on. Right, we're just going to stay there for just a second if I can get back. What is wrong with verse 5? Every Hebrew valued their name and genealogy. 
They were, they were so prim and proper and precise. Remember in Matthew chapter 1, you got all those begats? Precision. You get into Matthew or Luke, the end of the first chapter, and you get a little more. You go to, I think it's Matthew, or Genesis chapter 5, and, and, six, and you get some more genealogy. And, 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 the, and they're very precise about who begat who and who begat who and the sons that they had and so on and so forth. And the problem with verse 5 is that Judah is never in the Old Testament mentioned first. Reuben was the firstborn son of Jacob. And so for the, those of you who have children, we still kind of do that, don't we? I have three children, Ben, Byron, and Blake. You know why I say Ben, Byron, and Blake? Ben's the oldest, Byron's the second, Blake's the third. He thinks he's the first, but he's the third. And so we still kind of go in, those, in, in that order. For the Jews, for the Hebrews, order and genealogy was incredibly important. And even though you did not recognize it, when John wrote, and of the tribe of Judah were 12,000, everybody who read that just got a little nervous and went, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. John has just messed up here. Doesn't John know? How can we trust John? How can we trust his theology? How can we trust his Old Testament knowledge? Everybody knows it's Reuben, Gad, Asher, Nephtali, and Manasseh. Then he gets down and he leaves out Dan and inserts Joseph. What is going on? I think, this is where I've landed, I think verse 5 is huge in your understanding of the church and of Israel and who comes out of the tribulation and who's the 144,000. Because what I believe this verse represents is that it was John sending a theological symbol, a theological message tucked in apocalyptic structure that the nature of Israel had changed. Now, the nature of Israel was bound up in four covenants in the Old Testament. The chiefest of which was the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1, 2, and 3. God promised Abraham that he would give him a land, a people, and make his people a blessing to the entire world. And so what you have... When Jesus Christ came, you had the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Because the Messiah had come. Now Jesus would say, I go to the Jew first. But clearly the message was also to the Gentile. You get to the early church and... Peter had this Macedonian call. Paul is called the apostle of the Gentiles. And I think when he inserted Judah first, because Jesus came of the tribe of Judah. And there were 10 kingdoms. Matter of fact, if you really want to be technical about it, Israel did not even exist at this time nationally. They were under Roman oppression. The nation of Israel uh, divided, and there were ten kingdoms or ten tribes that banded together, made a northern kingdom, that's Israel, and they kind of dissipated around 587 B.C., and then a few years after that, it was Judah uh, and Benjamin. They made the southern kingdom, and, and they collapsed and were overtaken and lost their national identity. after that. And, and so what he's saying is, listen, the people of God, has now been expanded because the covenant of Abraham is being complete. And I think John is trying to say right before our very eyes. The seven churches of Asia 
while they had come out of a Jewish background, they were clearly Gentile in the people that they were trying to reach for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what I believe the 144,000 represent is a hugely symbolic number that represents the complete number of God's people made up of both Jew and Gentile. A Gentile is a non-Jew. And so God chose the nation of Israel through which he would have a land and a people so that from that people could come tribes and families. And from that tribe and family, there would be one called Judah. And from that tribe, Genesis chapter 49, and from that tribe, there would become a savior who would be born. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government shall be on his shoulders, so on and so forth. And so Jesus Christ comes to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant And not only did he come to redeem Israel, he came to redeem and save anybody who would look to Jesus, the Lamb of God sitting on the throne. So who's the 144,000 tonight anyway? This is where I land. It's the total number of God's people made up of both Jews and Gentiles. So John says in verses 5 through 8 that they come out of Israel and We've kind of hit that, and I'm going to kind of wrap it up here. We've already talked about that. Let me just kind of wrap it up here for tonight. What does it mean to be sealed? I think to be sealed has, has two things. So we, we know that I, I think the tribulation, at least that he's talking about in verse 7, uh, he thinks, and I agree with John, that and many Bible scholars that it started when Christ in the kingdom of God just, man, just crashed into this world and the forces of God and the kingdom of Satan collided and there's been tribulation, there's been thispus ever since, hot spots around the world, but the church always under persecution, always under tribulation, even to this day. The 144,000, I believe, is this vastly huge number that represents the total number of people of, of God made up of both Jews and Gentiles who have accepted Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the one who sits on the throne. And then what does it mean to be sealed? And this is where it is so comforting. This is like where you just kind of go, amen. Just listen, there's, there's two spots We're told that the believers in the vision have a mark of God on their forehead. Is this like a real tattoo or is it symbolic that we take on the personality, the nature, and the character of the one who sits on the throne? I'm fine if it's real, but I think it's more important that we have the character and the nature and the personality of the one who sits on the throne. And so to have that nature personality of the one who sits on the throne, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, slain from the foundation of the world, sends his spirit to live in our heart. So what does the seal of revelation do for a follower of Christ? First, it protects him from the ultimate consequences of the breaking of the seals, and it protects him from the ultimate consequences of the sounding of the trumpets, and it protects him from the ultimate consequences of the pouring out of the bold judgments in Revelation chapter 8 and and 9. Remember, the seal shows ownership. And you already read in verse chapter 7, And verse 4 or verse 3, don't harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the forehead of the servants of God. Listen, the devil doesn't need a tattoo of Jesus on your forehead if you're living for him. He knows holy character. 
But if it's real, I'm fine with that. But I think it's more the character, the personality of Christ. And so it's there to provide protection. Now, does that mean God keeps us safe or isolated from tribulation? I don't think so. Does that mean God will allow us and help us to persevere through tribulation? I believe so. The second thing that I believe this seal does is, that's just a little add-in right there. The second seed of Revelation chapter 7 tells us that on the other side of the thispis, on the other side of the tribulation, on the other side, when you come out of the great tribulation, where are you at? You're at the throne of God. Cassie Burnell, before her body hit the floor, I think her soul was in the presence of Jesus Christ. Before the last, or as soon as the last breath went out of Peter and Paul, and even John, when he died of old age. The Bible says to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. And I think they were ushered in to the presence of God. There's a new world with unrestricted intimacy with the Lord. Sometimes I struggle telling people how I feel. And sometimes I even struggle in prayer telling the Lord how I feel. But man, in heaven, it's unrestricted. And I'll be able to freely, even better than I ever have, express that love. And that goes together, these two scenes give us the strength to not run from suffering, to not fear the thispis, to not fear the tribulation. When the kingdoms of this world collide with the kingdom of God, we can have confidence, we can stand because we know that God is watching over us, that he knows who we are, we're counted among his people. And God will, with the Lamb of God and the Spirit of God and the presence of God, will be with us. Let's pray. Father.